Welcome y bienvenidos to About Consent, the podcast that sparks conversations about creating consent culture, boundary repair, sexual empowerment, orgasm equality, and raising a new sexually conscious and consent-empowered generation. This is a safe, shame-free, judgment-free zone where both survivors and those who support survivors are welcome. I'm your host, Rosalia Rivera. Friends, you're in for a treat to get to know one of my heroes. Uh, after having this uh, conversation, I have to say one of my heroes uh, is Dr. Daniela Ligiero. Uh, she's just amazing. I love her passion for the work that she is doing. I can't say enough good things about her. I think you're going to love uh, learning more about who she is. Uh, what she's doing, and how she is helping to dismantle rape culture, protect children, and empower survivors. Dr. Daniela Ligiero is the Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer of Together for Girls, a global public-private partnership dedicated to ending violence against children, especially sexual violence against girls. The partnership includes five UN agencies, the governments of the United States and Canada, several private sector organizations, and more than 20 country governments in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, working together to generate comprehensive data and solutions to the public health and human rights epidemic. Dr. Ligiero also serves as a member of the Executive Committee of the Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children. So friends, you're in for a treat. Tune in. Just want to share a trigger warning. Uh, we do talk about child sexual abuse, um, and she does share a little bit of her story. But I encourage you to, um, if you feel that you're up to it, please continue to listen. If you do need to pause at any point, just a reminder that your mental health and mental wellness is always the priority. So please put it on pause, but when you feel you're ready to come back to it, I encourage you to tune in because it is ultimately a very empowering episode and something that I think will inspire you more than uh, trigger you. So I do hope that you can stay tuned in. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Daniela Ligiero. Wonderful. So I am so excited to be joined by Dr. Daniela Vichero, who is joining me today. Uh, she is the CEO of Together for Girls, as I had mentioned in the introduction. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It is such a pleasure to be here and so exciting to have this conversation. You're doing such amazing work. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I wanted to start with... Um, First of all, congratulating you on the amazing work that the organization is doing. Um, as I've learned about the organization, um, I just am so excited to know that uh, as the name says, together, right? You're bringing partnerships together, both in the public and private sector. Um, we'll dive into more of that in a bit. Um, but I wanted to start uh, with the fact that you are someone who champions uh, survivors because you are one yourself. And I think that when we 
you know, we had kind of briefly talked about this before getting started, but when we can share our stories, it can help empower others to number one, realize that we don't need to have shame around our stories. Um, I, that's one of the missions that I have is to dismantle shame. That's one of the missions of this podcast. Um, so that's one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you about it because you are very upfront about it. And I think that more survivors need to understand that this is not something that uh, is our fault ever, regardless of what we've been made to feel or think or have been told. We are people that experienced trauma and we have overcome the fact that anyone who's listening to this is a survivor means that you have managed to overcome your hardest days and you're standing here. And that's amazing. So I applaud you for being able to speak openly about it and, and then to see how you're thriving. So I was wondering if you could start by sharing a little bit about yourself and how you ultimately came to the work of uh, Together for Girls. And I know that, that there's a lot there because you have <laughs> done so much. I mean, I was looking at your, your history and you are very accomplished. And I think that's just, it's amazing that you've continued on this path of ultimately wanting to empower survivors, but also obviously protecting children. So can you start with, with your own story and you know, whatever you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Rosalia, and I really appreciate you kind of starting there because I think a lot of times we look at people's CVs and we don't understand kind of the story behind that. And that's usually so important and powerful, right? To, mm -hmm. to, for me, it's, it's really, you know, the, the work I'm doing isn't a job. It's like, I'm really, this isn't my life's work. This is my life's mission. Um, so yeah, so I'm one of these like, hybrid citizens of the world. My dad was Brazilian and my mom was from the US and they actually met in Brazil when she, after she finished college, she was kind of doing some time in Brazil um, and because of family and work and they met, they fell in love. Um, and he actually, because of his job, ended up having to travel a lot and we moved every few, you know, every three, four years. So I actually, lived in a lot of different countries growing up. I got to experience a lot of different cultures, um, which was really, I think, instrumental for me in terms of understanding how we're really an interconnected global community. And there's not one way of living or being. And I feel that that really helped create this sense of me because I saw the best of humanity and the worst of humanity um, in terms of the really stark social injustices that happened in the world. And again, I was very fortunate. I mean, my family, you know, I had education and resources and all kinds of things that, but I could see around me, especially in, in some of the countries where I lived, kind of that extreme poverty um, and injustice. And I think it really drove me to want to do more around this issue. Um, and in parallel, you know, I've talked about my story for, for, gosh, over a decade now, I started sharing my story publicly. I am a survivor of sexual violence, of child sexual abuse. Um, that is something that started when I was around six and it was someone close to my family and it happened for several years. And like most survivors, I was terrified and I lived with a lot of shame um, and a lot of fear. Um, and, you know, it was really interesting for me. I like to tell this piece of the story. I was about 15 
when we were kind of on vacation with my family and I wasn't feeling very well. And they, we were actually at Disney World of all places and they, they went off and I was like, oh, I'll just stay at the hotel alone. I don't feel really well. And I watched this movie on TV. It's a made for TV movie. It's called Something About Amelia. I've since looked it up again to remind myself. And it, it really was the story of um, this adolescent girl who had been sexually abused by her stepfather for many years. And it was the first time that I actually saw like someone talking about these issues, understood like the consequences of something like this. You know, my whole life I grew up being told like, be careful about white vans and strangers and, but never about what do you do when it's someone close? Um, how do you react to that? And um, that movie really changed my life because my parents came back and, you know, for the first time I felt like I had the courage to, first of all, name what I had experienced. It was like, oh, that's what that was. And to talk about it, um, you know, and at that point, unfortunately, as we know, as survivors, I was already, you know, kind of feeling suicidal and experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And I was kind of going down this path to deal with my pain that was a really dark one. And being able to talk about that kind of unleashed a lot of things that happen, including my ability to access support and services. You know, I've been in therapy for 30 years. Um, I'm a psychologist by training. I'm very open about the fact that I'm in therapy because I feel like we need to acknowledge that when you go through this kind of trauma, you need a lot of support and healing, whatever that could look like. And for me, that was what was really transformational. And since then, I've been on this journey of not only healing for myself, but also really thinking about how do that, those experiences inform the work I want to do. Um, and I, I've said a lot, I'll, maybe I'll stop there. I can talk a lot more about after that, what happened, but but you know, for me, it was really around how can I bring together the interests I have, the passion I have for social justice with my own experience and how can I make sure others don't have to go through what I went through. Wow, thank you for sharing. And that's that's a very uh, powerful story for two reasons. One is that uh, it was also a movie that I watched when I was 17 that really changed my life. Um, and I just had a guest recently uh, who is also in this field of uh, educating families about prevention. And that was the same movie that she, the one that you're talking about, uh, something about Amelia, I think, right? And yeah. she also saw that movie. She isn't a survivor, but it, it impacted her enough. Uh, she was in her college years, I think, looking for, you know, what is, what is it that I want to do exactly? And that movie actually uh, changed the direction of where she went uh, with her life. And she's been, you know, educating parents for over 30 years. So, you know, really wow. powerful that that media can have that kind of impact. And I, I love that it was what helped you be able to open up because who knows if you had not shared what what would have happened and you were able to, mm -hmm. like you said, name it to even know. And, and that's something that a lot of survivors when their children don't realize even that, you know, that they can say it, that it is happening to other people. And I think that's the power of sharing our stories is that you feel the connection to others to realize I'm not alone in this. This is happening on a bigger scale and we can all do something about it. If you're a parent, you can educate your children. If you're not a parent, you can 
step into your healing journey, right? So that you can live your fullest life. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I love that you have transformed that, you know, you transformed that, that uh, pain and those challenges into something so empowering now for others. So can you share how you, you know, stepped into this work? How is it that you came to Together for Girls? And I also want to just quickly note that one of the things I really, uh, the reason that I came to find out about Together for Girls a few years back um, is that I had first learned about child marriages in uh, 2017, I think it was, um, where I start, I realized that this is still a really huge global yeah. issue, even in the U.S. A lot of people don't realize that. And that is how I ended up stumbling across uh, Together for Girls and learning about the work of violence against uh, children and particularly sexual um, abuse against girls. Um, so I, I would love to know how you ended up, like what was your journey to specifically working with this organization and um, you know, how it's empowering families across the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to go back to the point you made around prevention, because I think that that's such an important piece. And I want to come back to that. But I just want to acknowledge how important that piece is in all that we do. Yeah. So, you know, for me, one of the, the you know, when, when I was at in high school and then early on in college, I was, you know, early on in my healing, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? I had so many interests. I'm very artistic, but I also love science and math. And I was really kind of struggling at the beginning in terms of where I wanted to go. I mean, I didn't have in my mind, oh, this is, I'm going to lead an organization that works on this issue at that point. Um, But I ended up navigating towards psychology because I felt like it brought together a lot of my interests. And I felt like, oh, this helped me so much. You know, one of the first things that happened after I told my parents is that I started therapy. Then we also started family therapy, which was really helpful. And I was like, oh, this can really help people. And there's a component to it that's really around kind of science and evidence building, which I love. Um, as well as, you know, some of the other interests, uh, like there was art therapy and other things like that. So I started on that journey. And I thought for for a while when I was in college that what I was going to do is be a clinician, like I was going to work with kids and see people directly. But the more I worked on these issues, um, you know, and I, I after college, I went and did a, a master's PhD program. And I still really thought, okay, I'm going to do research and I'm going to see patients and clients and that's what I'm going to do. But the more I worked on this stuff, the more I realized that a lot of what drives the issue of sexual violence at large um, is really so much deeper. It's about communities. It's around societies. It's around norms. It's around power. And it really connected back to my social justice, you know, I've always had this underlying like advocacy, social justice, you know, attraction, I I guess you could call it. And it was like, oh yeah, like absolutely you need that individual piece. But if you're really going to start doing prevention and dealing with the bigger issues, you have to look at laws and norms and those kinds of things. And so after I finished my degree, I ended up spending a year working on Capitol Hill through a fellowship. And I was like, let me try this out. And I loved it. I was like, oh yeah, this is what I want to do. This policy work, this advocacy work, you know, how do you change the lives of millions at once? 
And again, I always say to people when they ask me, you know, it's not that one is better than the other. You need everything. You need people who are doing the one-on-one, but on the other extreme, you also need people who are changing systems. And I want to change systems. And so after that, you know, I had, I worked for the U.S. government. I worked for UNICEF. I worked for a lot of different kinds of organizations over time where it was really about the systems. And at that point, I was not yet sharing my story publicly. But, you know, one of the really interesting experiences I had was working within HIV. I spent a lot of time with the Obama administration at the Department of State and Secretary Secretary Hillary Clinton working on how do we bring issues of gender-based violence and sexual violence to our global health programming, including HIV, which is a Mm. huge, massive program. Because as we know, HIV, one of the drivers of HIV is actually, it turns out, sexual violence. Um, And I learned so much from seeing people when the HIV epidemic was kind of really just raging, the courage of people to come out and to talk about their status at a time when there was so much shame and stigma, and then to organize, to demand treatment, to demand prevention, to demand policies, the power of that. And I started thinking, we need that for this issue. We don't have that because mm-hmm. we're also scared, you know, to come out, to tell our stories. And in many cases for the right reasons, you know, and I thought here I am, you know, an empowered woman working on this stuff with a PhD. Like, you know, if I'm scared to say I'm a survivor, how can we expect, you know, a young girl that's 16 to come out and talk about this? And so I made a choice about a decade ago where I said, I'm going to start going public with this. And I did. And that was also the time when I was actively engaged in helping to start together for girls while I was at the U.S. government. As you mentioned, we are a partnership. The U.S. government is a partner. We have private sector partners, civil society, et cetera. And the whole focus was how can we understand sexual violence against girls better and then respond to that appropriately? Um, And those two things kind of happened together. And for me, it's just been amazing to, you know, be engaged in in the beginning of Together for Girls. And then I transitioned over to be the CEO um, about five years ago with the change in administration that happened then. Um, And it's been really amazing for me to both combine my passion for change and science and and policy with that personal story um, for, for the last several years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. And and it's it's interesting to hear about a survivor's journey because a lot of people think it just happens overnight. And, yeah. uh, you know, as an example with myself, uh, this is something that has sort of been ha- like a, a very winding road to get to where I am today to be able to share my story, which took a lot of courage, you know, because there's there's more than just you that there's other yeah. people involved in that story and, and being aware of how that's going to impact others. And I think being sensitive to that is important, but also knowing that when we speak up, we normalize this conversation. And that's a really big part of the solution is, you know, not no longer feeling that this is a taboo topic and, you know, putting it on the table and saying, we have to look at this because not looking at it and being silent about it is exactly what perpetuates the issue. 
And so, you know, thank you for, for being courageous and sharing it and helping others like myself, you know, connect to someone like you and say, you know, we can thrive even mm -hmm. if this has happened. And it's also a way to encourage others to step into whatever that healing journey looks like for them. It may be it's therapy, maybe it's working with holistic healers, whatever that looks like for you, learning to, to really accept yourself as a whole person and not as a stigmatized, you know, part of yourself that you have to hide. Um, and I know it's not easy for, you know, and I'm not encouraging everyone to go out and, and yell at, you know, the top of the roof of their house and, and say, this is what happened to me, but to seek out community, to seek out support and know that there are people who want to help uh, like you, yourself and myself um, who are survivors and want to say, you know, it's okay to, to speak up. And it's also, you're going to have support. You don't have to do this alone. So I love that number one, but number two, I love that you decided to take such action. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Consent Parenting, my online platform for survivor parents to learn how to keep their kids safe from abuse. Did you know that children of survivor parents have a five times higher chance of being abused because survivor parents don't know or learn the tools needed to prevent abuse? They tend to overprotect instead of empower and prepare. You can change the statistics by becoming an educated parent. Get started by downloading my free guide, Seven Ways to Teach Your Kids About Body Safety, Boundaries, and Consent by going to aboutconsent.com forward slash guide. The link will be in the show notes to get your free copy today. Now let's get back to the show. Um, you know, and this organization, uh, you know, looking at, I'm from El Salvador originally, mm -hmm. I, I was born there. And I know that you recently had, uh, you know, data that was collected and, you know, implemented, uh, you know, how can this be tackled in countries like that? You know, was, in, in Latin America, it's still one of the biggest taboo topics that no one's talking about. So for me in particular, uh, also wanting to reach the Latin community, um, the Hispanic speaking community, Central America, South America, I love that you're doing work in those areas as well as other um, areas that are really having these incredibly high rates of sexual violence continuing to happen, particularly to children. I wanted to ask you, because I, I read recently, uh, you, I think it was in August of last year, you did an, you wrote an article for The Hill, mm -hmm. um, talking about the US and, and really this silent epidemic, right, of uh, child sexual abuse, and how it's been obviously exacerbated with this lockdown um, mm -hmm. and urging the government in particular to fund, you know, solutions for this. Uh, how have you seen that there has been much, like, I almost feel that I don't know where to begin with that. How can we as everyday people contribute to that solution? Is it writing petitions or writing our Senate, you know, I'm in Canada, so I want to do something in Canada too, but I look at the governments and, you know, they're so overwhelmed with everything else that they're dealing with as it relates to the pandemic. Um, what can people, what do you think people can do um, that, that can make an impact to call governments to action? Because I feel like they're, they're not doing very much. It's almost like they acknowledge the problem, but they're not really doing that much to find solutions for it. And I, and I know everyone's, you know, 
organizations, grassroots. Uh, there's so many, you know, private and public organizations that are are fighting this fight and and are definitely putting more effort into it. But I feel like without that funding, it, it's not making enough of an impact, and particularly for law enforcement. Yeah. What What do you think is uh, yeah. you know what can do? So, you know. So just to take a step back, I mean, one of the things that we have done as an organization, and again, you know, our focus is sexual violence against children, adolescents, and youth. And we started off just focusing on girls, but I just want to say we also have a whole piece of work where we've also developed um, that's focused on boys because boys also experience quite a bit of sexual violence in childhood and adolescence. And that actually has implications for them later in life, as well as perpetration, you know, it's just these cycles of violence we're talking about. So there is this continuum of sexual violence. We tend to focus more on children and adolescents, but it doesn't mean that, you know, doing it at every stage of life is really important. Um, and, you know, I found that there are three components that are missing and that we've started to build. Uh, with partners. Um, and there are many other organizations that are doing this too, but I think as for the field as a whole. The first is understanding the size of the problem. Most people don't understand the size of the problem. With Me Too and you know this data that we've been contributing and many others, like more and more there's a sense of, oh, this is a big problem. So one of the things Together for Girls does, as you mentioned, is we work at country level to actually do these surveys to understand what is the magnitude of the problem. And I can assure you every time we work in a country, El Salvador is one of them, but many others, you know, we have over 24 countries at this point. It's always like, oh yeah, that doesn't really happen that much here. And then we go out and do research and data at a country, you know, population level. And it's like, oh, turns out 30% of the girls have experienced some kind of sexual violence before the age of 18 and, you know, 12% of the boys. And it goes up and down depending on the country, but this is massive. And so really the more we can showcase the size of the problem, and that's where I think survivors coming forward is also really powerful to say, hey, yeah, this happens in every kind of socioeconomic status across race, across religion, ethnicity. Um, so there's that piece. The second piece is really the solutions that you were raising. I feel like there's this sense of, oh my God, it's so bad. Once you understand the side of the problem, you just want to put it under the rug and move on because what are we going to do about it? But it turns out that there's a lot of science and research that's been built over the last you know, two decades. There are interventions that work at every level. Having conversations within families is really important. So we have a series of tools for parents. You mentioned this before. Parents should be talking to their kids about this. Um, and again, not just the, oh, be careful of the white van, like really understanding what do you do if someone does something that makes you feel uncomfortable? Who do you talk to? Like even naming it from an early age and making it age appropriate is really important. And there are tools for parents on how to do that. Then if you, if you move out, you know, within communities, there's really important things we can do. We talk a lot about safeguarding. Every organization that deals with children should have rules about everything from screening the people that work there to anonymous you know, ways to, to say when something bad has happened to you know, 
committees that think about the safety of children. I mean, there's so much you can do, whether it's a religious organization, whether it's a sports organization. I mean, look at all the scandals we've seen in the church and the Catholic church and in, you know, like the Olympics team, you know, here in the US. A person like Larry Nasser doesn't abuse over 285 kids, girls, you know, over a period of 15 years, just because. It's because that system is not in place. And then further out, you know, really what you were talking about, you know, the, the laws that need to be in place to punish perpetrators, to make sure that, you know, survivors can come forward. So we really think of a framework that's prevention, healing, and justice. And there are laws and regulations and things people can do in each of those three. The last thing I'll say is the question about how do we then organize around that? What are the prevention things that need to happen? What are the justice and, and the healing pieces? And I believe that in addition to what we do as individuals, we absolutely need to build on this powerful movement of survivors to make sure that governments and other institutions are responding. We don't have that yet. Me Too started the, here's the size of the problem, let's expose it, but we haven't yet taken it to the next level where we say, every school needs this, every sports team needs this. You know, here are the laws that need to happen. So I'm hopeful, Rosalia, that moving forward, that's my vision, is that we can really build that out and to really push our governments, because if governments aren't pushed, they don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very yeah. true. Very true. I, I love that framework. And I think, you know, just listening to it, I have goosebumps because there are so many things we can do. And I think that that's what people don't realize is that they get, like you said, they get overwhelmed by hearing the data and the scope of the issue. A lot of parents very naturally, particularly if they're survivors, will want to put their heads in the sand and just say, it's, you know, I'll just overprotect my kids and I, you know, don't have to worry about it. And unfortunately, that's just not how the world is operating today. Kids are connected to the internet. There's so much more access, unfortunately, mm -hmm. for predators to con connect with them. And of course, you know, for me, it's it's about abuse prevention for sure. I just also feel that that we have, you know, as a as a collective, we can do so much more. And so that's why I was asking. And I love hearing that you said that because I agree. I think the Me Too movement has been so instrumental in highlighting, whoa, this is a, you know, this has been going on for a really long time. People, you know, the culture of silence really is, yeah. is what we're breaking through. But now that we've broken through some of that culture of silence, I think there's more work to be done in that space, particularly for child sexual abuse survivors. Um, and I feel like that's gaining some momentum, but I would love to, you know, mm collaborate right and how can we all really get together and 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 take action I'm, I'm very much an action taker so is there some more awareness um that you've seen globally around child marriage because to me it's just when I first heard about it I remember thinking that's essentially sanctioned yep. legalized child sexual abuse yep. um and, and even in the United States, this continues to be, uh, you know, I think it was just a few years ago in Florida that, it, that the age was finally uh, moved to 18 because of a lot of the advocacy work that survivors um, were, were doing. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? What sort of the, the state of affairs worldwide today as it relates to child marriage? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I sometimes get a lot of pushback, but one of the things we've started doing is using this language of sexual violence against children and adolescents. And the reason we do it is because we want to take a more macro approach. We understand that multiple forms of violence are actually all very interconnected and have similar root causes and similar solutions. So that means under that umbrella is child sexual abuse. Under that umbrella is child sexual exploitation. Under that umbrella is child marriage. Under that umbrella is the sexual violence that happens in dating relationships. You know, we talk a lot about what's happening on college campuses, less about what's happening in high school. Um, and it's equally terrifying. Um, and so really, you know, those things are connected. And, you know, on the child marriage piece specifically, a lot of pushback is around, oh, well, that could be, you know, boys and girls that are young getting married. But we, we see over and over again, we let the data guide us. That's really important. Evidence must guide us. These aren't opinions. Mm-hmm. Over and over, what we see is in the majority of cases, it's a younger girl, you know, or adolescent married to a much older man, in which case, absolutely. You know, you're talking about a girl that's 12 and a guy that's 30. That is actually, yes, sanctioning child sexual abuse. Um, And we see that it is a problem everywhere. There are some countries around the world where it's a much more significant and serious problem. But as you point out in the U.S., you know, this is not illegal in every state. um, And there's been a lot of work to try to change that. So I've seen that issue gain traction. And in fact, there's this amazing coalition called Girls Not Brides. We work really closely with them. We just had, you know, our yearly strategy session where we're really like saying, what can we do together? Because there's power when we, instead of saying, oh, there's this issue here and this issue here, like bringing some of this stuff together. And I think I see that with like the people that sometimes push back or the people that work on child sexual abuse. And they say, oh, when you call it sexual violence, people don't understand that that's child sexual abuse. And I like to say, well, as a survivor of child sexual abuse, I feel like what was done to me was violence. You know, violence is the definition of violence by the World Health Organization is any harm that one individual does to another, whether it's psychological, physical or emotional whether they intended to or not. And so that is the same structure, system, silence, shame that allow that to happen are the same ones that allow a 12 year old to marry a 30 year old and that allow a teenager, you know, that goes to a party to get raped and then not tell anyone about it because she feels ashamed, you know? So I, I think there's a connectivity issue here and I feel like There has been progress, but more is needed to connect those dots because unless we work together, we won't be able to break through the noise. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I agree. And you just reminded me of a case that I just read about, um, I think a couple of days ago, a court case in India. um, That, And the reason I bring this up is because what you just said reminds me of the fact that we, a lot of people don't realize that the dominant narrative, unfortunately, continues to be one of rape culture. 
Yeah. And that's really, to me, at the foundation, right, um, of, of why this, this continues to happen and, and how if we start to shift culture, we can start to shift laws and we can start to, you know, move in the direction of consent culture. Yeah. And when I look at something like this case in India, where um, it was now said that if uh, a person or a, in this particular case, it was an older man who had molested a, a young girl, at, but he had done it over her clothes. So it wasn't under her clothes. It was now said to not be considered sexual abuse. Um, and to me, that screams, you know, patriarchy, rape culture being institutionalized, right? Um, and so when we, I think the fact that we're having these conversations to bring awareness to, you know, there's outrage, of course, when you hear those things, but then there's people who, you know, message me on Instagram and, and they share, you know, an article like that and sit and they say, what can we do? What, what can we, how can we make a change? If we see things like that, where they are being sanctioned, right? And it's very similar to, uh, you know, child marriages, where it's basically being sanctioned by these, these uh, higher level government, you know, or court systems uh, around the world, really. And so for me, it comes back to, we have to start talking about the, the root causes. And you know, you had mentioned uh, power, you know, power is one of these um, things that I think people don't realize is at the root of sexual abuse is being able to control uh, gender, you know, gender based violence is, is rooted in control and power. Hmm. What do you think, uh, you know, and I'm always I feel like I'm asking you these giant questions. I love, but it. I, I love uh, hearing your answers because they, they, you know, really get tactical too. And for me, I'm always, you know, I come at it also from addressing this sort of Madonna whore complex mm. that's at the root of, of I think, rape culture. Um, and it's so hard because culturally in many parts of the world, right, that is just the, the, the normal narrative of what women's place in the world is and in within family and, and what their, their uh, role is supposed to be in the world, how have you seen anyone effectively combat this culturally? Like, do you feel like it's really just about having more conversations, creating more summits and, and getting the word out? But like, how has that actually created change? Do you see that in governments that that's changing? Because I mean, we just went from a president who really literally said this very, uh, derogatory term about you know grabbing a woman and and that being okay and he was still elected mm -hmm. and and to me that's like we just you know put rape culture on a pedestal um to you know how do we shift that narrative what what are some ways that you think are are happening that are maybe effective that we can be doing more of perhaps oh i love the big questions we have, we have to <laughs> We have to think big. This is absolutely, and I think one of the things that, you know, my, a lot of like our journey as survivors, I think is from feeling very isolated, alone. It's just me, this just happened to me. I'm so not connected to then. I mean that, you know, this awakening around once you 
realize how many more there are. And part of the really perverse piece here is the system, the structures, the powers that be, you know, are pushing us to feel isolated because the change happens when we connect and we want, we demand something else. And so we have to go there. And, you know, but I think I, I, I do want to say not everyone needs to go there. You know, I think there's a lot, the tough part is there's a lot of kind of healing that you have to do kind of internally with your own community and your own body and kind of feeling safe in there. For some people, that's what they want to do and that's enough and that's great. And then for others, I think perhaps like you and me, there is, as part of that, there's also healing in talking about it, connecting with others and, and using that experience to create transformational change. And so, you know, I think that transformational change can happen at so many levels. I encourage people to say, you know, you can start with your family, you can start with your community, you can start with your school board. Like what's going on in the school? What are the, you know, what are the rules? Ask the questions, you know, you can go federal, you know, at a country state level, at a country level, like what are, what's happening? There are people out there fighting for laws, like how, you know, engage there or global. And along that continuum, there are many places where you can plug in, but I do think, you know, wherever you choose to go there, this conversation around power is so important. And understanding that my experience, your experience, the experience of the people listening is not an isolated incident. It is connected to something much deeper and broader. And I like to think where I work when I'm talking about sexual violence against children and adolescents, it's the intersect of the power that men have over women and the patriarchy and the power that adults have over children, which mm. is also really important and something we don't talk enough about. And that creates this double vulnerability for kids, both boys and girls, around how to deal with this. And so I really think we have to, if we're going to create that change, we have to go there and we have to understand, you know, that, that there are these systems. Now, again, prevention, healing, and justice. What are the laws that let someone get away with doing certain things? And we're like, oh, it's... It's okay, whether they're a president, you know, whether they're a priest, a coach, whatever it is, you know, what are the kinds of services that we offer for healing? You know, we say, oh, if you break a leg, you should have access to certain kinds of healing. But, oh, yeah, you know, if you were sexually abused, sorry, you have to figure that out on your own. Why is that? And then prevention, you know, we leave it up to people to do whatever they want instead of saying, as you pointed out earlier, oh, we have hundreds of millions of kids online. What should we be doing to make sure that they're safe? Or in the school system or in the sports team, oh, we should consider given how many cases there are out there, making sure that these kids are safe there. So I think there is a lot to be done. And part of it is the awakening Hmm. of understanding that versus continuing to think, oh, this is an individual issue, you know? Yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes. I love that. Um, and I agree with 100% of what you said, because uh, for those listening who say, you know, I am not ready to do that work because it's too triggering. 
um, I want to mm -hmm. highlight the point that you said, maybe the work that you need to do is just the healing for yourself. And that's going to empower your family. That can be a huge catalyst, right? And that can be the work that you do in the world just to heal and that taking, reclaiming that power. Um, so I, I want to point out that if, if you're in that space, it's okay to just focus on your healing because it, when we heal, we can heal others. You know, it's like that saying, hurt people, hurt people. I think healed people heal people. And, and we can- And Angela Davis always said, you know, she used to say, self-care is a revolutionary act mm -hmm. because the messages we're getting are that we shouldn't. Yeah. You know, so I, I fully- Yeah. 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 And, and definitely on the prevention side. So what can you do if you're a parent, what can you do to call, call in your community and, and activate them, you know, and have these conversations. It doesn't mean that you even have to say out loud, I'm a survivor, therefore I'm doing this. You can say, I'm a concerned citizen, therefore I'm doing this and I want a better world. Right. And, and we can all take some kind of action, whether, like you said, micro or macro. Um, and I think through that, we can make such great impact that if we all do something, we can we can start making change. So thank you so much for your time. I, I mean, I can talk to you for hours, but I wanna be respectful of everyone's time and, and just uh, how can people uh, support your organization? Is there a way that they can either uh, contribute or just learn more? What, what would you recommend for people to get activated as it relates to Together for Girls? Yeah, absolutely. It, it has been fun, hasn't it? Um, yeah, I, our website is www.togetherforgirls.org. Feel free to go in there. We have resources. There's an opportunity to donate, but there's just a lot of information that could be helpful. I would also encourage people, you know, metoo.org has been doing amazing work um, as well. They have a whole series focused on survivor healing, as well as a lot of resources and tools to activate in your community. So I encourage you to also look at that. Um, and, you know, I just, I'm so humbled and honored to, to be with you, Rosalia. And, you know, the work that you're doing is just really phenomenal. I'm, I keep being reminded, I mean, for the listeners, you know, there's this quote by Malala, who won the Nobel Peace Prize many years ago, and I always think about it, you know, she said that when the whole world is silent, even a single voice can become powerful. Mm. And I think really finding that power within ourselves, especially when we feel kind of isolated and alone and alone is transformational. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, we're in this fight together. And I think that, you know, when we can call our community in, um, we can activate so many more. And, and that's, that's how this is all going to, you know, become a change that, that I think this is, you know, to me, I keep telling everyone 2021 is the year that we can truly make an impact on this issue and and we can all do that by taking action so thank you for continuing to take action and for being here with me today so listeners if you found any of this inspiring if it uh, is calling you to take action i would love to know please tag us please tag together for girls here on instagram screenshot it let us know what were your best takeaways. How are you going to take action? I love action takers. So please be sure to tag us and let us. Don't miss the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. 
And I would be so grateful if you took one minute to post a five-star rating and reviews on iTunes so that others can also find this information. I will be shouting you out and thanking you on the next episode. If you found this useful, be sure to share it with others as well. Let's continue to create consent culture, one conversation at a time. Stay empowered. Know, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for being here. Stay empowered.